3: From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's an uncomfortable reality that an increasing portion of human life is structured by powerful and opaque technologies. Getting a loan, parole hearings, resume sorting, the political ads that appear on your phone. Across fields, machine learning systems are out there trying to sort you into statistical buckets. Worse, NBC technology correspondent Jacob Ward argues in a new book, The data that artificial intelligence systems use to predict what we'll do next mostly show, in his words, the ancient instincts, the tribalism. Targeting those parts of us is profitable. So that's what's happening. He's worried, and we probably should be too. We'll talk with him. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. On the surface... Jacob Ward's new book, The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back, might seem like a close-up technology industry examination looking at business models or the ethics of startup founders. Instead, it combines a remarkable synthesis of a mountain of behavioral science research about the human mind and a travelogue through the world of artificial intelligence history and current practice. These components combine to create a book about the dangers of AI-fueled capitalism. The problem in building advanced predictive systems based on data about human behaviors is that most of what we do is governed by bias-filled, unconscious systems in our brains. AI won't be copying the best modern humans can be, but the powerful remnants of our evolutionary history. The Loop of Ward's title is, quote, A Downward Tailspin, of shrinking choices supercharged by capitalist efficiency, in which human agency is under threat from irresistible systems packaged for our unconscious acceptance. Ward's technology correspondent at NBC and started writing this book during a fellowship at Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Welcome to the show, Jake. Alexis, thank you so much for being here. It is a tremendous honor. Yeah. Now, I know you've read a lot of technology industry criticism. I mean, it's a whole genre now. Surveillance capitalism, the social dilemma, et cetera. What did you want to bring that was different to the discussion of what to do about our hometown industry's products?
2: I really appreciate the opportunity to to name check a few people here, you know, who have done extraordinary work like that. So Shoshana Zuboff was a huge uh, influence on me. Uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism is such a brilliant and enormous and ambitious book. And so when you're facing a mountain of that kind of criticism and thinking, man, how am I going to get involved in this? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's quite daunting. You know, in my case, the thing that I had not yet seen was a look at the fundamental human tendencies that I was seeing over and over again being played on by these companies and by just the raw technology they are deploying. And, you know, I'd been through this tremendous personal experience of uh, doing a big PBS series, a four-hour series called Hacking Your Mind, which was specifically about the unconscious systems we use to make decisions and the big uh, formulation there you know the last 50 years of behavioral science is essentially centered on this idea that we think we are making our decisions with a very modern cautious creative rational brain our slow thinking brain uh, but instead we are making the vast majority of our decisions with a much older uh, much more rigid Uh, And very powerfully instinctive fast thinking brain. And as soon as I learned all of the different places in our lives that the fast thinking brain is in charge, you know, not just the stuff that it was evolved to do back when we were all just fighting for our lives. Um, you know, snake detection and stranger detection and fire detection and calorie detection. It turns out we're using that brain for all kinds of things in our modern lives. And as soon as I knew that, and then began to have these experiences of talking to internet entrepreneurs and app makers and product developers who seem to have a little bit of a grasp of that just enough, they start, I realized they're, they're beginning to use that understanding that behavioral science And combining it with this breakthrough technology, pattern recognition systems, artificial intelligence, and I thought to myself well wait a minute, if we combine this sort of pattern recognition algorithmic business model with these unconscious systems that govern so much of our decision making what are we about to outsource to these systems and are we just going to accept what they say and i hadn't seen anybody really thinking about that and i i mean people lots of people i think are thinking about it but i had not seen a book that had put those things yeah. together and so that was my ambition here
3: you know you kind of tell a story in the book about research that beatrice de gelder did with a patient code named tn and i'd like you to tell that story because it Becomes a pretty powerful metaphor in the book for the ways that our brain functions. Can you tell us a little bit about that research?
2: Absolutely. So, Beatrice de Gelder is a brilliant uh, uh, researcher who holds positions both here in the United States and in Europe. And she has always been considered a little bit of an outlier as a researcher because she deals specifically in the ways our unconscious minds carry visual stimuli into our brains. And so her research was inspired by um, some very early rudimentary World War I research um, that was essentially looking at soldiers who had been uh, the victim of a very specific and very terrible injury. Essentially, a bullet or a fragment had gone through their heads, not killed them, but severed their visual cortex, the circuitry that that connects the eye to the brain. And she had read all of these anecdotal reports from various researchers back then about the weird sort of remnants and fragments and hallucinatory stuff that those patients were reporting, Mm. quote unquote, seeing, even though they were ostensibly blind. And so she wanted to be able to do a similar kind of research in the modern era. And she realized that people who have developed lesions on their visual cortex from strokes have very much the same thing and she began using those patients to investigate how we see essentially. and so T.N., who you're describing there is one of these people. she brought them in uh, you know it's hard to find folks who, who are like this and so you know they, they bring them in at, at, you know it's incredibly difficult to find them and, and bring them in you pay them for their time, the whole thing. They were experimenting with this guy for you know a couple of days and getting nowhere. There was nothing going on, and they were trying all kinds of stuff that, in retrospect, they say was sort of silly. But they were just you know taking a swing at it. So mm-hmm. ventriloquism, various things, putting things in front of him to say, you know, what do you see anything? Do you see anything? And he he essentially reported, you know, no, I'm blind. Look, you know, he walked with a cane, the whole thing. So at one point they're on a lunch break and he is uh, you know just chatting with them about this, that, and the other. And and his wife was with him and mentioned that he gets around pretty good for a man who is blind. And they, as a little experiment, just set up this obstacle course in front of him uh, down this hallway. And they asked him to walk down the hallway without telling him that there were obstacles in the way. So this man who is blind shows up again, you know, with assistance of his wife, uh, you know, cannot, you know, he, he carries a cane, the whole thing. He gives them the cane with a little hesitation walks forward. And then there's video of it. He he picks his way through this obstacle course the way you or I might. He turns left and right and edges along the wall. He goes sideways. He is obviously seeing the obstacles. And what's crazy is at the, when he gets to the end of the hallway, the Gelder said that, you know, everybody just gasped, right? He's surrounded by graduate students saying, how did you do that? And his response was, do what? Mm. And it turns out this guy has no conscious idea that he was doing this he was somehow in the thrall the grip of some unconscious navigational system that was spotting the the obstacles in his way communicated in, in into his brain and somehow controlling his muscles to move around this stuff all without his consciousness so why that is so fascinating is that it, it built this foundation for De Gelder of investigating the unconscious ways that this stuff is getting into our brains. So she began to experiment then with putting similar patients in front of big displays of people expressing emotions on their faces. So you have a big screen in which someone is grimacing in pain or laughing uproariously. And then they show these patients this same stuff and they ask them, What do you see? And time and again, consciously, the patients say, are you kidding? I'm blind. I don't see anything. What are you talking about? But it turns out that when she rigged up their faces with little sensors that could sense the micromuscular movements of their faces, it turns out they would actually respond by mimicking unconsciously those hmm. emotions. You show somebody a smiling face, they begin to smile back. You show them somebody you know, making an angry face, they begin to make an angry face back. So she basically has created this whole idea that we are an unconscious mechanism. Our, our brains have an unconscious mechanism for both receiving and transmitting important emotional information. That's why if you and I are sitting together, Alexis, and, and the room catches fire... We don't say, oh, I wonder how hot that fire is. <laughs> you see the grimace of, of fear on my face, your face catches it, and we are out of there together in this coordinated mm-hmm. way. And so once I saw that, I was like, well, wait a minute. Okay, now what happens if a computer begins to pick this kind of stuff up? You know, we aren't, we're, we're moving in a way that we don't even consciously understand. We're communicating in a way we don't consciously understand. What's it going to do to us when, you know, automated systems figure this stuff out about us? Yeah.
3: You know, for people who are somewhat familiar with some of these ideas, their their minds might go to Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a big, very, very popular book called Thinking Fast and Slow, worked with That's right. uh, Amos Versky at the same center at Stanford where you began this book. And just for, for simplicity's sake, that sort of the unconscious stuff became known as sort of system one, right, this kind of automatic decision-making processes, and system two what was that? That's sort of our analytical brains. That's our sort of what we think about when we think about thinking.
2: That's right. So I, I devote a couple of chapters to this of this book to Kahneman and Tversky and the constellation of researchers that they inspired because they are absolutely, um, you know, at the center of so much of this kind of investigation. And System One, like you say, is our most ancient, instinctive, fast thinking system. Um, The evolutionary biologists estimate that it's probably at least 30 million years old because we share a bunch of aspects of it with our monkey and primate cousins in the evolutionary uh, history. And so, you know, that system has been in, you know, us for, you know, since long before we were modern humans. The other system, system two, the slow thinking brain is a much newer and it's interesting, much glitchier system than the system one, because it's probably only about 70,000, maybe 100,000 years old. It's the system that had us, you know, we, we associate with our higher functioning, our higher consciousness. So, you know, whatever it was in our brains that stood up right? When we were all living on the continent of Africa, of what is now Africa and said, wait a minute, what is, what else is out there and what is this life? And, you know, whatever sort of unconscious abstract ambitions we built, you know, those seem to have come out of this new higher functioning brain. And it's that that allowed us to invent things like politics and law and art and the rest of it. And all of that is a very, uh, you know again a very new system we take great pride in it as humans but we also i think don't understand how much of us is still using that ancient 30 million year old brain that we share with other animals
3: we're talking with jacob ward he's technology correspondent at nbc news and he's the author of a new book the loop how technology is creating a world without choices and how to fight back we'll be back with more with jake after a short break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jacob Ward. He's technology correspondent at NBC News, and he's the author of *The Loop*: How Technology Is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. You know, before the break, we were talking about the different modes that our brains have. Uh, You know, System One, sort of more automatic decision making. System Two, uh, more recent, logical decision (laughs) making, or at least the uh, the things we think of as logic and uh, kind of higher function, and in the book, you relate that some Silicon Valley folks are, of course, hip to the ideas of you know, System 1 and System 2. And they'd like to use those, the forces in those systems and the spaces between them to get us to do stuff, a field called behavior design. Can you describe sort of some of your interactions with those companies?
2: So I had for many years knew that, that known that people were thinking about these ideas to some extent or another, you know, Kahneman Tversky and their work in thinking fast and slow. Um, Daniel Kahneman's book, thinking fast and slow, you know, is a popular text read by marketers, for instance. Um, so i had known that there was at least a, a, you know, a broad abstract interest in this stuff, but I had not seen how specifically it was being deployed until I, I went to a dinner in 2016 that was a tremendously formative moment for me. And I'd been spending a lot of time around that time. Um, I was working for Al Jazeera at the time, and we were covering the opioid epidemic and, and the way it was, uh, you know, the way the, mm-hmm. that heroin and, and uh, opioids were, were ravaging the streets of San Francisco. So I spent a lot, I, I just happened to have been coming from thinking a lot about addiction and how it grabs people and, and this, that, and the other. And, and I go to this dinner that was a sort of a casual dinner among um, what were called they were they were basically a, a bunch of entrepreneurs who were who in some cases had been behavioral scientists in past life or had studied it in school. And now we're trying to apply the lessons of behavioral science to making products and making them more attractive. And so We're sitting there, and that night we were there to listen to a pair of newly minted PhDs who were addiction experts, and they were describing the ways in which the human brain not only forms addictions, but then explains those addictions to itself and justifies them in various ways. And they were basically there offering up their expertise as addiction experts to anyone in the room or beyond to get people to addicted to, to products <laughs> to get people addicted to products. And they were literally drawing these direct comparisons between how, a you know, how a cocaine if someone who's addicted to cocaine habituates to it, this, that, and the other, you know, and, and they were showing them how you can put that into, you know, the, the endless scroll of a feed and all of these different things. And I just thought, Oh my God. And then at one point, somebody asked them, you know, there was a sort of an awkward pause and somebody said, is there anybody you would not work for? You know, is there anybody we wouldn't work for? And they said, you know what? We don't want to be the thought police of the internet. They were—they said that they were totally agnostic about about this, you know. So for me, I just thought. And then we had this whole big conversation about how the people in that room could never actually be addicted because we're sort of different than people who've had great trauma in their life. I mean, there was all of this rationalization going on, and all this, as you say, behavior design talk going on. And I just thought, you know, and we were—I was—I think we've all been very lucky in the society that it is the fashion in tech circles to be about social justice and helping people lose weight and helping people save money and that's what most of these products were about. But obviously that is not the case all of the time. And it is just, you know, there but for the grace of God, uh, you know, is is everything. So for me, seeing that and then at the same time hearing people talk about, you know, uh, I, I was talking to a designer at google one day and and i said you know, you know i said well you know tell me a little bit about how you get a product made and he said well one of the rules we have to satisfy is called the toothbrush rule and i said what's well, the toothbrush rule and he said well it, it's the rule that a product can't really go forward at google this was you know several years ago so it may have changed but a product cannot go forward at google unless it uh, is going to be used habitually at least twice a day as part of someone's daily routine, hmm. right? So, just the business incentives and the behavioral design stuff, I could just sense was was becoming, you know, more and more. Uh, it was it was form taking form in a more and more specific and structured way, and I just started to realize, oh, and I know you've seen this too. You know, this is part of how people are thinking about these products now. Well, and you know the, the way
3: you describe this in the book is that these companies are sampling the sort of the innermost loop of our behavior, that sort of um, long evolved brain that we have that 's now confronting all these modern forces, and it 's reflecting those patterns back at us and It feels like that you know the place where people oftentimes feel that, that tension between you know what their brain is doing and what's being served back at them from the samplings of their behavior is on their on their feeds on their social feeds and and we'll go into a lot of other examples in uh, a little bit later in the conversation but like, what do you make of the fact that our behaviors are being sampled on say Instagram and fed back to us as advertising like what do you make of those feedback loops.
2: Well, I, I certainly, I mean, I think one of the things that, that we just lose sight of as, as the recipients of those feeds and, you know, being on the receiving end of those feeds is just how specific and targeted all of that is, that mm-hmm. the, it, is, it is not happenstance that you are on there. And I, I can't tell you how often I speak to people who say, oh, did you see that ad the other day on Instagram? You know, and I'll say, no, no, of course not. I don't see the same ads you do. We are so specifically targeted around that stuff. You know, I think my broad read on it is that when you, you know, any marketer who has ever read anything about behavioral science and knows anything about the system one, system two theory, fast thinking brain, slow thinking brain, immediately understands that if you're going to, if you have a choice between selling to one of those two brains You don't want to be selling to the cautious, creative, rational brain, right? That's C-3PO in the back of the Millennium Falcon saying, the chances of success here are, you know, (laughs) 10,000 to one. You want to sell to Han Solo sitting up front who's saying, don't tell me the odds, you know, get out out of my face, nerd. You know, I'm going with my gut here. Because everything in both our brains and our culture makes us want to, to make the gut decision because that decision feels good. And because everything around us, including what's coming at us in our feed is geared at that. It feels less satisfying to, to take your time and think things through and do your research and blah, 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 blah. It feels so much more satisfying to, you know, feel angry at a political story or, you know, yell at somebody in the comments or, Um, see someone who's super attractive, and you can't help but look at them, you know, that stuff is all your instinctive brain. So why wouldn't our feeds be aimed at that stuff? It's so much easier to sell to.
3: Yeah. And of course, developing these habitual things is not limited to, to just Google. I mean, I think the place in my own life where I feel this most acutely is around Peloton, which some people know sort of the exercise app company and bikes and treadmills and things, I can feel the way that the, the incentives that they've put in place and the way yeah. that the app is designed and making sure, you know, that you, you do it every day so you don't break your streaks. And this whole yep. set of, uh, of design principles have essentially led me to always want to capture every workout I ever do in Peloton just so I can make sure I get credit within this entirely constructed world yes. of Peloton, right? Yes. And I, I think what's difficult for me is I actually feel like that's good for me. Like I actually, right. I, It like helps reinforce like positive habits. But is there a way in which that can go off the rails too? Or do you see dangers even in things that seem on the surface to be good for us?
2: absolutely i mean what, so what you're describing is is i think i think the most important thing we're going to have to sort out as a society and i and i think i think that you know law is going to have to figure out a way to articulate the difference between what you are describing which you and i can agree is inarguably positive that's fantastic right like keeping your addictive impulses your system 1 impulses pointed at this fantastic thing right and and there's so many things connected to it right uh tribalism right you're a peloton person right you're <laughs> you're part of that crew you know you'll even hear people say you know i'm part of the tribe you know the your loyalty to to you know f- for me you know I've and the I'm first thing they pel- say
3: in every workout is hey if you're new to the peloton family welcome you know welcome yeah.
2: to the Peloton, right i mean and, and so inarguably you know, that's fantastically you know it's just fantastic people are getting exercise in amazing ways at a time when we're all you know isolated by the pandemic and the rest of it. i mean yes fantastic now You can take all of those same design principles and aim them at something like, for instance, video games. For me, I have, and we can talk about, you know, I have many uh, problems with habit. I've uh, had problems with smoking cigarettes. I've had problems with drinking. uh, And video games are another one for me where all of those same principles are at work. You're part of a tribe. Your friends are all on there. You're, you know, don't. Uh, you know you get rewarded in most game design for playing every day there's a little extra bonus thing you get for having logged in again all of that is there but for me I had to stop playing those games because they you know threatened my marriage and my ability to be a good father to my kids you know for me there is a very important distinction there and the problem is if you read it the way that traditional law does that's you know we think of time and attention as this ephemeral endless you know, infinite resource that we only we as individuals are in charge of. And I think what I'm trying to argue in this book here is that we actually need as a society to begin saying, oh, this is a finite and very important resource. And the difference between Alexis, you know, uh, adding years to his life by being addicted to Peloton and Jake Losing years of fatherhood by being addicted to video games is a really important one. We have to articulate as a, that as a society, I think. So
3: let's hear from some of our listeners. You know, have you ever been hooked by an app or a technological system? You know, maybe it's a good one, like Peloton is for me. Maybe it's not. Uh, give us a call, 866 uh, 6786. That's 866 6786. Join the forum, fam. Just using some of that Peloton tribalism language. <laughs> careful, uh, careful. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and, and comments to forum at kqed.org. You know, I, I wanted you to tell a cautionary tale. Uh, as well, about someone who got addicted to these social casino games, and we can do we can do yeah. it quickly, just in a, a sketch. But I think it's just it it shows kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, really perfectly.
2: So, eleven of the twelve top-grossing games on Facebook are what are called social casino games, and these are online simulators of your classic casino experience: slot machines, poker, the rest of it. Plus, they add on. Social networking. So you create a club, there's video chat, there's text chat. And the crazy thing about these games is that they cost money to play, but well, I mean, they are ostensibly. But you can never cash out. It's a casino play. where you, but you can never in. cash out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the, the makers of the game would say that they are free to play, but in fact, to go deep and, ha- and to take advantage of all the qualities that make them addictive, you have to pay money, but you can never win money back. So they are the definition of a loser's game. But when you speak to the thousands, and probably it's many more than that, but according to official court documents, it's thousands and thousands of people who have lost, in some cases, their entire life savings to these games. So I interviewed a woman in Montana who uh, lives as far, you know, incredibly far away from, from classic casino experiences, and yet fell prey to this and blew her entire retirement on this and will now be stuck working probably until the end of her life to do this. She's part of a big class action against one of the, the makers of these games. And what's fascinating about these games is that, you know, on the, on, I, I get all of this pushback from people I've done reporting on them for NBC news. I wrote about them in the book. I get pushback from people who say these people deserve what they, what they lost. That's ridiculous. You can't possibly hold these companies responsible for this. People are just stupid. This is essentially the, the response mm-hmm. I get. But what's amazing is I, I just the other day, bumped into somebody at a party who used to do the kind of marketing for the these games um, that allows uh, the the makers to find those people on facebook and on other social forms of social media and he described to me the very specific tactics that they use to uh, i to to segment the audience to filter the audience by things like low gpa right low education levels or by distressed lines of credit is what another expert was telling me so There is an incredibly powerful system at work, finding people who are likely to be susceptible to this stuff and delivering them to these companies. And for me, that's that same Peloton thing, tribalism, the fun of being with your friends, all of that stuff, the addictive uh, quality of of, uh, repeat play. And in the end, just predatory capitalism, taking people's money that they cannot afford to give.
3: Let's bring in our first caller, Peter from Berkeley. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks, and thank you for this topic and uh, Mr. Ward, all your thinking, deep thinking, and research, and so on. I think it's so important. Ah, this holistic thinking too, and and I want to hear more about how to fight back as an individual when you. Uh, are confronted with that feeling that you're being controlled online. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to hear how can we as individuals, but also as AI programmers in society, reinforce the virtues like telling the truth for goodness sake and, uh, and wishing for good outcomes instead of lashing out uh, with ill will. Uh, How can this be encoded And how can we, you know, fight back against the negative forces as individuals and as a society?
2: Thanks for that, Peter. Really appreciate that. Jake? Yeah. So, you know, Peter, I really appreciate that question. And and it is the big thing. I think, honestly, I believe it's the number one thing we're going to have to figure out as a society in the next few years if we want to get things back on the rails. So one of the traps that I think our current moment has set for us is the illusion that it is up to us as individuals to fight back. And you hear this a lot in tech circles, where the people, people who work at the, some of the best resourced companies in the history of the world, um, with the smartest people, you know, that they could possibly hire deployed to, you know, to, to shape, you know, to analyze and shape how we behave, nonetheless, make the argument that people need to take better responsibility for themselves and their own decisions and are deeply scornful of the idea that these companies need to be held to account for it. So for me, I am irritated by people who, who say that we just need to get tougher or educate ourselves or you know, be less distractible, all of that. When, when, the, when you have the equivalent of a nation-state aiming its resources at trying to get you to do the opposite. I don't think it's fair to put that on individuals. That said, I do think that there's a huge amount of extremely important work that individuals hopefully can do. For instance, right now, uh, I, I'm a part of a group of parents at, uh, my, at the school where my kids go, and we are trying to come up with a pledge together to not give our kids individual smartphones until they are in high school. And I can't tell you how complicated that conversation is. It raises all our individual anxieties about ourselves. And are we, you know, how do we, do we understand our kids? Do we understand ourselves as parents and our relationship to technology? It's so complicated. And one of the things in doing that, that has been so clear to me is nobody else is helping out with that. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you can't find you know there's no regulation coming down the pike to help you sort that out you know it is totally up to us so i think that's deeply unfair and that is why i think that it is now up to regulators to look at the the incentive structure of these companies to look at the tactics that they deploy and the technology that they use and begin to make it cost something to deploy those things. Because right now it costs those companies absolutely nothing. So I'm a huge fan of education. I'm a huge fan of us all understanding it better. Hopefully a book like this and many other books like it can help people understand it. But I think that it is until somebody runs for office on this kind of idea and wins that we're gonna be in the thrall of these companies.
3: We're talking with Jacob Ward. He's technology correspondent at NBC News and author of The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, talking with Jake Ward, technology correspondent at NBC News, about his new book, The Loop. Let's bring in Mike from Silicon Valley. Hi. Hey, Mike. Welcome.
4: Hi. How are you? Doing well. Um, Do you want... I have a comment, and thank you for the topic. Very interesting. I'm an industrial designer, and um, I've worked with marketers and product people that apply and talk about these principles often. I often hear to it referred to as uh, the the lizard brain, and I have an opinion that the the design community should i think structure itself and work a little harder to um put a little bit more responsibility and accountability on individual designers and how they um, are involved in these projects and apply their expertise and the only analogy that I could give is you know some of the responsibilities and accreditation that they a doctor or a lawyer is um, puts on their profession and how they conduct themselves. And like you'd basically really agree
3: it. not to implement like dark design patterns and like do no harm in these things.
4: Yeah, I'd say do uh, a do no harm op- opinion. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a gray area for sure on, on what and where and how you would want to do these things. But in terms of, of consumer products and, and how we're running down people's throats and, and, allowing them to make decisions on their with their lizard brain, I I would say, yeah, you should think about doing that before you do it <laughs> and sense. have a yeah. good reason.
3: Jake, what do you think about sort of uh, industry folks like kind of banding together, creating a code of ethics and and helping to reduce maybe some of the the, the worst excesses here?
2: Yeah, I Mike I'm sitting here sort of I literally was just looking at the ceiling and nodding along as you were speaking. I think that's such an interesting idea and it's not one I've really thought much about. I think that's a very interesting idea the hippocratic oath that uh designers might have to take in order to proceed. I mean, we have some examples of that, you know, in in you know, as an officer of the court, you have to take a certain Uh, you know, vow as a, as a physician or a nurse, you have to take a certain vow. It's an interesting idea. I, 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 and I think it speaks also to the, the recognition that we are really playing with live ammunition here, that this is not just, um, you know, a a sort of a casual, you know, we have left behind, I think the casual age of, um, you know, shot in the dark marketing. That's not how it's working anymore. It's really working in these very powerful ways. Now, I, I think that, there has been a huge amount of talk inside, these, inside the industry about reforming itself and changing the way that students are taught this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, 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 and I applaud that. I'm, I'm grateful that we live in an era in which people um, cannot hire young people at a company unless they can articulate a higher set of values. I'm grateful for that. I would say, however, that it is probably, I don't think it's going to be enough to certainly just leave it to some sort of you know a trade association right or guild or something to manage this stuff because it is, you know, having spoken uh, to people inside all of the big companies, there when you hear about the way in which decision making is isolated, And how um, individual designers are very often not just discouraged, but really at pains for being fired if they ask too many questions about how their work is going to be used or raise a stink about that in any way, you know, the siloed highly secretive world of this stuff is, is a very problematic thing. I think for, for the kind of transparency and accountability we're, we're going to need. I've, you know, I've covered the military, I've covered government and it is so much easier to get people inside those institutions in that arena to speak to you than it is to talk to anybody inside the tech industry. It is a deeply secretive industry. I can understand why, but I think that leaving it to itself to sort this out is definitely not going to be the only way to do this.
3: Well, and as you know, too, in the book, that the math and algorithms and software that are developed in one domain can easily uh, spread to others. You know, it's like uh, Huey Newton had a, some, something of a joke about the sort of how uh, the technology industry in, influenced the world. You know, he said, you know, you need transistors, you know, back in the day to like guide bombs. Uh, and, you know, you get that's people right. to work on the transistor, not on the bomb. And even though they're that's sort of right. part of the, the war machine in that way, that ethical responsibility gets kind of thinned out for people because all they ever built was a transistor, you know. and I, I think, think that's, that's right.
2: I yeah, I think yeah. that's right. I think there is also it's, it is, it is you know, the I, I want to be clear here that I, I think very I'm very alarmed by the profit motives of, of people who deploy these systems on each other. I am also, however, I think it's really important and I know that Alexis, you think about this a lot as well, it's important to also just understand the, the fundamental human vulnerability to believing systems we don't understand and you know taking the verdict that comes out of a piece of AI that we don't understand, um, that, that is, I think, an extra layer of danger here That is that makes it very complicated to, to think about this stuff clearly. I think as a society, we're literally going to have to you know, uh, understand that we are all prone to manipulation by systems we don't understand, even if the people making those systems have the best possible intentions and have taken every oath. You know I just think it is it is in our programming to go along with a sophisticated seeming system, and that's a thing we, we I don't think have come close to grappling with.
3: Well and I'd love you to talk about one particular kind of system, you know these risk assessment um, uh, tools. And in particular, maybe the way that they were deployed to deal with an overwhelmed employment development department, EDD, you know, which was trying to process unemployment claims uh, during coronavirus. Because it's a really charismatic example of like what can happen when we just sort of say, well, uh, we're humans are overwhelmed. Let's throw some technology at it and that'll, that'll, that'll shortcut things. And so, so what That's happened? That's
2: right. Yeah. So so when, during the um, pandemic, when um, we were giving out uh, state and federal money to um, distressed individuals to to help them out, people could apply through California EDD uh, for help, and uh, California EDD was totally overwhelmed by the influx of applications and had been stung by the revelation that. Uh, multiple people inside correctional facilities uh, had been filing for this, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. fraudulently. Mm -hmm. And Scott Peterson, the the famous uh, convicted murderer, uh, was supposedly one of them. So they then decided, okay, we need to come up with a better system of doing this. And like every company today, and really almost any institution out there, saw the opportunity to use AI, because lots of companies will offer you a piece of AI that looks really good to solve this problem. So they implemented a system built uh, by Thomson Reuters to uh, try to suss out fraud. And what they essentially, what that system wound up doing was spiking seven in 10 applications. I think I have that number, right? Which is, you know, so so the, the assumption being that 70% of people sending this stuff in were, uh, were doing it, you know, fraudulently. And as a result, at a time when the difference between, you know, getting this payment or not was for people, the difference between staying in their homes or not during the pandemic, you know, suddenly 70% of them get uh, rejected uh, using an automated system. So, uh, you know, I started to look into okay, well, how does this system make decisions and what's it built on and the rest of it? And, you know, it's an extraordinarily opaque system. There really is no clear way to go in and investigate how it made those choices. It's not clear whether you could, as an individual, go and appeal it in any kind of efficient or effective way. Um, and so, for me, it's, it's, a, it's an example again and again of not only trying to save ourselves the, the work, you know, the labor of, of sorting through applications, it also helps, and we see this time and again, it helps an institution absolve itself of the, of the ethical discomfort, right? the moral discomfort of telling a desperate family, no, you are spiked. Instead, you're just saying, the computer has said this and so that is the verdict. And so for me, the the way in which I think more and more and more companies are going to st- are going to start relying on this kind of thing, not to uh, make life easier or more efficient necessarily, except in as much as it's going to absolve people of, of difficult and undesirable, you know, choices. Yeah.
3: Well, and of course, we also have the possibility of inequity in all of these uh, systems. And yeah. Lisa writes in, I very much appreciate this discussion of this topic of our first brain and our second brain. How might this also play into the perpetuation of isms, racism, sexism, etc.? Does the new AI have the possibility of reinforcing those or not interrupting them in our unconscious brain, making the task of unlearning isms more difficult, even for those who consciously want to interrupt them?
2: Well, so absolutely, and thank you so much for that question. So um, there are many brilliant researchers who've looked at the ways in which, uh, you know, racism and, and ageism and sexism and, you know, all of that is built into uh, uh, these sorts of systems. Uh, Joy Boulamutny is one of them. Uh, Temnit Jebru has done great work on this and is starting a new institution around it. You know, there's some really smart people thinking about this stuff. And one of the th- big takeaways is that, you know, yes, those sorts of, you know, systemic inequality is built into stuff. So for instance, um, I spent a lot of time with this fantastic researcher named Jesus Hernandez, who who has looked for years at the history of redlining in um, the Sacramento area. And he's created this basically a predictive map system that can tell you based on the ways in which housing discrimination was perpetuated over the years in Sacramento, he can then use that to predict the chance that someone born in a particular part of the city is going to graduate from high school, wind up incarcerated, have a negative health outcome in their life. Um, and, you know, the direct correlation between how certain groups of people were held back historically from being able to enter the housing market um, and the, the ways in which their lives are, are playing out now. You know, he's it's now a model for all sorts of cities all over the country. So he opened my eyes to this. So then I started to look at all of the systems that, for instance, assess credit and uh, you know make loans, which is a big use of AI these days. And I was speaking at one point to a, a, somebody inside a company, or he, he had been at a company that used to make very small loans to people using AI. And I had understood from other people that, that perhaps this company was trying to counteract historical patterns of inequity in loan making. And I asked this person, you know, oh, I, I understand you. You guys, you know, we doing some interesting experimentation to try and maybe take out some some variables that in the past have perpetuated racist patterns in loan making. You know, what what did you find? And it was very interesting. He said to me, "Oh, yeah, we experimented with that for a second, but we were actually we decided in the end that it was not the right thing to do, um, that because it would require putting our fingers on the scale." To such an extent that it would be an unethical use, we would be appointing ourselves sort of gatekeepers of something that's sort of unethical. So there was this very interesting kind of libertarian streak in what he was telling me. And, and that, that attitude that, you know, I think the the sort of the most craven version of it is we just need to deliver value to our shareholders, which is an argument you hear a great deal of the time, or at worst, you can also hear you know people actually thinking just you know that that politically somehow you shouldn't be trying to fight historical patterns of oppression you know there's a hands-off attitude from some of the people who make these systems or there's also sometimes the, the, the assumption that if you simply tweak the data then we'll do better you know if you if you if you get better data we'll do better but the problem is so many of these historical patterns Go back so far and have metastasized through our society in all these different ways. You know, people have told me that they were trying, even in cases where they tried to counteract historical racism and things like loan making, they wound up with even more racist patterns than they had. So I think that that, you know, Lisa is absolutely correct that that these systems are are very often going to act to reinforce some ancient ideals we didn't, you know, ancient uh, isms we didn't even know we had. And unfortunately, they're going to do it in the guise of a system that we mistakenly assume to be neutral. Yeah. Nina from Oakland, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, hello. Um, I was thinking um, about uh, why um, this question, why people don't feel antagonized by these Um, followers you know I hate to see to notice and it's very easy to notice that I am being followed you know if because Mm -hmm. I bought something blue they are being they are offering me blue (laughs) and I don't like it I'm very angry when I notice this and I was wondering about other people am I the only one who don't buy these things
3: I mean, I was joking before the show, uh, Nina, that what makes me angry is actually when they uh, misunderstand me with targeted advertising. They, like, show me a pair of shoes where I'm like, I would not wear those. But um, obviously that is uh, what you're pointing to is actually a much deeper problem. Um, what, what do you think, Jake? it, it Doesn't seem yeah, so- to bother people enough to stop using the things.
2: Yeah, I was once talking to a, a top executive at one of these big companies, and and um, he was explaining to me that the conundrum that he faces, which he said was, on the one hand, people are skeeved out by the idea that they are being surveilled. On the other hand, they want the most personalized ads they can possibly get because they get irritated if we send them ads that aren't relevant to them. Now, I, I think that's a pretty self-serving. Uh, <laughs> he was telling me a pretty self-serving story there, which is a common thread in the reporting that I've done. But you know, it is true. I think so. So everybody who has a phone on them, you know, it has is at the center of a overlapping set of surveillance systems that are incredibly effective at figuring out who you are and what you're about. And this has two. There's two big reasons for this. One is not only you know they know uh, th- th- there is there are so many different. Uh, uh, places in our lives that we touch down into a surveillance apparatus. Every time you open XYZ app in particular in some particular place and you don't realize that you have the location services enabled on that app, they have a register of you paused at this place and did this. You This is where you thought about this. You know, there's so much predictive work that can be done there. But here's the other thing that I think people don't understand is that, you know, you and I, Alexis, Wright, are not as different from one another as we would like to pretend we are. Everyone mm-hmm. thinks they are a unique individual. I always like to believe right and this is the Western ideal that we are just I'm a unique and beautiful human you're not just a number
3: Jake yeah,
2: yeah no I, it turns out <laughs> Alexis I'm here to tell you yes I am <laughs> and we all are the the buckets into which your average predictive system can slot each of us is incredibly effective at predicting what we're going to do it is it is no it is looking at Nina and saying she liked this in blue here, and all these other Ninas just like her also like that, and then went on to predict, you know, and and so we can predict that she's going to do this next. And, you know, the thing I'm articulating in the loop, what for, what the formulation that's taking place here is not only does that turn out to be true, but as Nina's choices shrink in future, as more and more of that prediction gets done, she's going to be offered fewer and fewer choices. She'll choose one of those that'll get analyzed, you know, and I think at the bottom of that spiral, the danger is we could all end up wearing beige and drinking Soylent. You know what I mean? Like like, (laughs) there is a limiting of choice that is happening here that serves capitalism's purposes and that's the danger I'm trying to warn people about. Thank you so much,
3: Jake. Last couple of comments. A listener tweets, yes, having the AI designers or whatever that category of workers is sign a pledge is reminiscent of the genetic engineering industry doing something similar with regard to genetic manipulation back in the 90s. A statement at Asilomar. Chris writes, on the other hand, I've been intimately involved over the years with several of the early fundamental founders and financiers of tech's largest companies, and one thing should be made clear, altruism in tech is a fallacy. It's truly a shame that the greatest technologies and minds of our time are used for advertising and exploitation. We've been talking with Jake Ward, technology correspondent at NBC News. His new book is The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. Thanks for
2: coming on, Jake. Alexis, I'm such a great admirer of you and of this show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thank you again.
3: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.